Welcome to Grad Life by the Horns, the bi-weekly podcast hosted by Becky Hills and Sophie Scully. We're here to make your 20s that little bit less scary. Touching on everything from career anxiety, struggling to pay your rent and the imposter syndrome that we all feel but no one talks about, this podcast will prove that ultimately we're all in the same boat. Hello and welcome to episode five of Grand Life by the Horns. I can't believe it's episode five. five. Oh my We're god. We're getting into this now. We are. We're getting into a swing. We finally got to grips with the technicalities, kind of. There's going to be people, so someone listening somewhere being like, have they? Yeah, people podcast <laughs> in San Francisco is going to be like, I can hear some background noise. There. I know. Someone who's in the background. Oh, but, yeah. yeah, we had we had a bit of a hoovering disaster during this episode, um, <laughs> but we are so excited to share this episode with you. It's one of my favourites so far. Gemma, oh, Gemma is incredible. Yeah, I'm so happy you got to meet Gemma. She is literally the best person in this world, and so many people have so such good stuff to say about her. Like all of the quotes I got from mm. people, I messaged them being like, "You've worked with Gemma. Like, what can you say about her?" And they touched on her leadership and they touched on um, her approachability. She is just incredible person. She radiated positivity. And this episode, we cover so much stuff. We touch on moving to a new city, living at home with your parents after graduating, mental health, mentoring, diversity and inclusion, and how that can relate to us being graduates and what we can all do to empower people from all different backgrounds in the workplace and be better people ourselves like i'm so excited to share this episode mm. shall we just get let's into just it let's get into it let's stop talking today we welcome the woman of brains beauty and banter and strong brows Gemma lomas when you think of the broad and often complex words welfare diversity and inclusivity Gemma's face may as well be attached to them as she is a true advocate for them they all show up in everything she has ever committed herself to throughout both university and grad life from performing in various welfare and diversity committee and executive roles at Loughborough University to now working as inclusivity and diversity manager at the House of Lords. Gemma is a shining example of how you can hone your passions and university experiences into a fulfilling and purposeful career. She is hugely admired for helping others through their careers also, saying she helped me shape my own career ambitions and still to this day inspires me to follow them, fight for them and to achieve them. A true inspiration to anyone she both worked with and knows, Gemma, it is super exciting to welcome you onto Grad Life by the Horns. I can just retire. I feel like that is all I needed to hear about. Wow, that was unreal. That's your new LinkedIn bio. Oh, straight away. Yeah. 100%. I'll hold you, you to that. that. Oh. It will be there. Thank you so much. So welcome. So we start every episode by asking you three questions. So the first one of those is, what's the most adult thing you've done this week? So um, I was looking forward to this question because I'm really proud of myself. (laughs) I sold a piece of furniture. That's very adult. Right? It's kind of like middle-aged adult. I've kind of like skipped (laughs) a bit further than I thought I was going to. But yeah, so just moved into a new flat with my flatmate, Jen. Um, and we picked up some furniture from the guy that lived there before us um, and I wasn't a huge fan of one of the pieces so sold it but yeah put posters up made posters wow. got a few text messages did a bit of bartering with people yeah oh my god only made 20 quid but I'm chuffed to pieces with that that's yeah. like old school selling as well yeah, you know right. like a good flyer <laughs> love a good flyer it you have to get the whole generation <laughs> <laughs> literally <laughs> And the next question is, what's gone wrong this week? So I was ruminating over this question a bit um, because I think I can be quite self-critical. So I was like, there was probably a lot of things that I would say that went wrong this week. But then I realised the thing I was kicking myself most about was the fact that I didn't go to any of the three gym classes that I put myself onto. So that didn't go to plan. But then I realised that, you know, sometimes everybody has those weeks you know going to a gym class isn't priority for this week so you know what are you going to do so I sold a piece of furniture that's all I need yeah we've all been there 100% every time I book a gym class I'm going to do this it's going to be great and then I'm just like oh I can't do this <laughs> yeah, exactly. not today exactly. the intention was there exactly I planned yeah. it yeah. wrote it down even not mm. just in my phone calendar <laughs> and I still didn't do it <laughs> you're burning calories by thinking of it yeah exactly <laughs> and going on from that what have you learnt from both of those this week I think what I've learnt from both of those things is that each week is different and 
small successes should be appreciated and kind of pat yourself on the back for just as much as small losses so I didn't need to go to those classes if anything I felt a bit pressured to go to those classes because it's on the run up to Christmas I'm going home and seeing loads of people from home and I want to look really great so I wanted to get all you know fit and toned and do the whole body pump situation but actually work didn't go too well last week it was really busy it was feeling really tired and if the only thing I did last week was go to work and sell a piece of furniture actually that was a decent week and a gym class didn't need to be part of that yeah yeah the thing is is like you said you're so self-critical so Mm -hmm. as soon as you miss something you plan you're Mm -hmm. like oh I'm a failure I didn't do that so what am I doing with my life yeah exactly (laughs) and everyone says oh gym class is so easy to go to because it's um something you commit yourself to as opposed to going to the gym every now and again but you know it happens mm-hmm. you usually book them yeah. and you are a busy bee so you miss them for a yeah. good there's always next week yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and it didn't cost anything time. well it did from wasted gym membership fee but never mind you know yeah. <laughs> we move on <laughs> we move on yeah so I think the first thing that would be good to ask you Gem is obviously you come from a long line of experience in welfare and diversity. So what would be really good is if you just gave some context of where that kind of passion came from and how it started, and we can go from there. I had the pleasure of going to Loughborough University, where I met Soph. Kind of knew from arriving at Loughborough that I didn't have like a niche yet. Like before you got there, everyone was like, oh, what sport do you do? Absolutely zero as evidenced by the gym classes, um, <laughs> you know, what, what's your like hobby, what's your thing that you do? And I didn't have anything, I just really enjoyed being around people, I really enjoyed having good conversations, and I was just really looking forward to a different scene, like by the time you go to uni you're just so ready to not be at home. So I ended up going for Hall Committee in Elvin Richards, Ooh. went as secretary, vice chair, and absolutely loved it. Again, it was just kind of like small activities, but it felt really great to be part of a bigger group and a committee that was like doing stuff for the students in Elvin and you know obviously there was lots of parties and nights out involved which you know of course added benefit um (laughs) but yeah just kind of got into the whole student union structure figured out what that was all about um kept kind of in touch with all that sort of stuff right the way through my degree so went from being on hall committee did that for a year to then not doing anything and realized oh no not a fan of this, need to find another like club or group of people that I can <laughs> spend time with. So went for Global Development Officer, which is what it was called at the time, um, on the Students' Union Exec. So that was like one of four part-time student uh, roles that you could do while you were still studying. And part of the reason I was really interested in doing that one is because as a kid with my dad's job, we moved around quite a bit. So I spent time living and being a kid and Belgium and Germany and we moved around quite a bit oh wow yeah so a really great experience as a kid um and it was just something that I was quite interested in especially because moving to Loughborough and being at the university there I was exposed to way more international students and just different cultures and experiences than I had been in my little town back in Cheshire like you know it was quite um isolated in terms of that sort of stuff so I was just really interested by the time I got to you know the opportunity to get this position um so I ran for it got that and then got the bug for exec as I'm sure <laughs> lots of other people <laughs> from Loughborough can attest to <laughs> but it's the same in Sheffield but oh yeah it? it's such a the competitive Sabs, thing right? yeah. it's just a thing like the whole campaign mm, they're there in first year like right when's my campaign beginning yeah, yeah 100% mm. planning from like day two yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so actually I did notice the VP welfare position um, during my freshers so you know they do the whole induction bit at the start where they're all there in like matching t-shirts and talking about mm-hmm. what they all do different sections of the union and I remember thinking it was the first time I was properly exposed to a group of students that were just talking about the welfare of other students and the well-being of other students and for me that was balmy because like primary school high school it's you know you just have like your counsellors at school or you have like you know your form tutor you can have a chat with if you're a bit upset there wasn't really a structure where it was like peer-to-peer support and engagement and stuff so noticed it in freshers but then fast forward to final year campaigned for vp welfare and diversity very hard fought campaign and was yeah successful so that was the proper moment when i realized that i could make a bit of a difference and properly talk about conversations that 
including myself, a lot of people haven't been exposed to. So the whole diversity element of the welfare and diversity um, was something that, particularly at Loughborough, which is quite um, quite white, quite middle class, quite um, stereotypical in terms of what a sporting university might look like. Mm-hmm. It was some important conversations to have. And I'd been involved with the section a little bit as global development officer and just, yeah, realised that it was having those conversations that got me going. I had a bit of a buzz for it, you know, like got really passionate about it over the pub quiz or whatever. And yeah, so did that for a year, did a multitude of campaigns. And I still, to this day, and probably to the grave, will credit so many of the skills that I feel like I've developed over the last few years to that job and to that year. Because you're catapulted from being a student who can just about manage their time, submits a dissertation in 12 days, sort of last minute, uh, into somebody that is, you know, one of a small group of leading individuals within an organisation, kind of took the sorts of topics that welfare and diversity discuss, stuff to do around kind of um, mental health and wellbeing, um, practising safe sex, talking about um, and empowering minority groups such as... um, lesbian, gay, bi and trans people, um, looking at the black, Asian, minority ethnic groups and the kind of uh, race and cultural heritage stuff, um, looking at accessibility, all, all those sorts of areas which absolutely have carried through into the job that I'm doing today, um, but just in a student sense. So it has more of a campaign feel about it. It's got more of a like active discussion weight to it. Um, but took it a little bit further and started some other campaigns which personally were really really relevant to me so we started a consent week and a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. about consent workshops and what that means I think I'm again making assumptions looking around the table but young women at uni you experience certain things which men aren't as privy to um, and it was really important for me to talk about that. Um, Drink spiking was a really big campaign that we did as well. I think that was actually the campaign that I remember the most. Oh really? Because it was just the media coverage you guys got. It was, they put, um, is that when you put pegs? Yeah. <laughs> so they put pegs on drinks and um, it's basically proving if it's easy for us to put a peg on a drink, it's mm-hmm. easy for someone to put a pill or drugs in your drink and it was all filmed it was all caught on camera and Mm. even though it was funny it Mm. was it proved such a point and it really hit people because I remember we were just sat in our halls and we were like oh my gosh it's like I walked around university with my hand over my cup the whole time (laughs) that was great yeah (laughs) that's such good feedback it was it was really fun to do when you write like it it made it a bit comical so it stuck out in people's minds but I had the unfortunate experience on like the first night of that fresh year being spiked. So it's my first night in front of students as an exec member and honestly one of the most awful nights of my life. But again, was it was really lucky and fortunate to be in a position where we could talk about that a little bit more because when I started talking about it with students that I was working with that were volunteering with the section, um, they were sharing similar experiences. So yeah, we did like a whole multitude of campaigns and one actual tip that I got from the deputy union director at the time was that if you write out your CV and completely write it accurately in terms of the events you're involved with, the campaigns you've done, the budgets you've controlled, but then just change student union to organisation and student volunteers to like colleagues and peers and stuff like that, your CV very quickly goes from being a SAB CV to actually the CV of somebody who's very experienced in people management and engagement and stuff like that. That's such a good point, because I think people will see student and they're like, oh, it's like something you did at uni. Mm -hmm. And actually it's like, no, this is like a legit job. Yeah. Like you're getting paid, you're doing a full-time job. Like it's all the stuff that goes into it that you would do in a normal job just because you're a student doesn't make any difference. Exactly. Leading on from that, I love the way that you use the term bug, because like you do tend to just find something mm. it's, it's like a little kind of like a butterfly moment when you have one conversation like that's it yeah that is i love talking about that yeah. that is my passion a lot of people really struggle to find a job in something that they're passionate about especially as a graduate you kind of settle for something that is okay mm. but not where they want to go yeah so what was it that you think was kind of like the turning point that allowed you to have that 
privilege, I guess, yeah, of working yeah. in something that you're so passionate about? I don't think it's any one thing, which is frustrating, because before I came here, I was trying to think of that one, what was that one door that opened that was like, huzzah, this is what you need to do for the rest of your life, this is going to be amazing, go for it. But I think finding the words to describe the thing that I was passionate about made it very simple to then do the research and find the direction. So I very much felt before I got to uni that I had this kind of hunger in my belly and you know like this you see things on the news or one of your mates says something in conversation and it can be about anything it doesn't like for me it was inclusion and diversity related stuff but it can be about anything and you just like you say it's that fire in your belly it is the bug and all that I did that I think helped me see that that was the direction that I could go in because often as you say I think there's so many not just graduates, but people in general out there who don't think they've yet found the thing that they enjoy and that's their passion um, and haven't figured out whether they can turn it into a career. I honestly think it's the, it is the asking around. I was having conversations with anyone and everyone who was working in something to do with people in the university, for example. So when I was still working on exec, I'd have meeting with, meetings with colleagues in HR, I would meet with colleagues in learning and development, until I found the person who did the equalities stuff for the university. She's called Abda. She's amazing. Mm. Um, still one of my favourite people on this planet. And she really helped me figure out the words to describe how I was feeling in these conversations. So I knew that I was getting super passionate in certain topics and, you know, was okay with it, but wasn't as burningly excited. So, for example, the... Um, physical well-being and health stuff loved doing that did not have a burning desire to talk about it after work and with my family whereas the diversity stuff literally could not shut up about that it was talking about it after work chatting about it with my family and it was having that conversation with abda and connecting with existing professionals in the organization that helped me figure out what was out there and she was amazing she sat with me we had a look at like you know the standard indeed jobs.ac.uk all the all those ones um and looked around for what was there and kind of eventually began to learn the terminology so it might say human resources assistant but in the job description it might refer to things such as equality legislation or it might refer to things as culture change and behavior change and i started to pick up on on that sort of thing i've got to be honest though like straight after exec you you go from being at this all-time high this amazing year of being a sab um, and then some of us got jobs and, and moved to London and what have you. I went back up north to home because I hadn't dedicated the time to finding something. And then spent six months fun employed. But it was looking for the stuff that I'd done with Abdo and looking for the words inclusion, diversity, mm. equality, that sort of thing. And I've got to be honest, it was really thin. Like it was really tough over that six months. But there was one job, one job that popped up that said inclusion and diversity officer. And I read this job description and I was like, this is it. This is my foot in the door. And I've got to be honest, Dave, I think it was probably a pure chance that I happened to be on the right job site at the right time on the right day. Um, but also the fact that I'd, I'd tried to arm myself with the right words so that I knew what I was looking for because going on these recruitment sites and job sites is an absolute minefield like mm. all the words everybody uses and you don't know where to start no it's, there's just no. so much jargon like it's mm. crazy um, and I applied to 36 roles over that six month period and I only heard back from one um, and I put hours into those applications I heard back from one that was the civil service last stream telling me that I didn't get through. Oh, no. um, and then eventually the one that I did get was this um, IND officer job at Salford. And did you find that you were getting to the point when you were unemployed that you were just like, I'll apply for anything at this point? Or did you really keep it in mind like, no, this is what I'm going to be doing. This is what my passions are. It'll happen. I've, a bit of both. I bickered with my dad so often on this topic because he was very much the kind of traditional approach like, fling out your CV, send in the applications, just get your foot in the door somewhere and, you know, then you can build from there. Whereas because I knew that there was one specific area that to my dad seemed really nuanced, <laughs> it, was, it was a battle and it was a struggle, but I kept kind of 
using my time when I was unemployed to do the research, read the articles, watch the documentaries, do stuff to kind of keep the juices flowing so that I knew there was actually stuff out there that I could be doing. And I looked at other options like um, looking at journalistic opportunities, looked at um, work in the charity sector, like really tried to broaden the scope. And there was other stuff that I could have gone for. Um, but when I saw this IND officer job, my gut was literally like, mm-hmm, yeah, that is the when one. When you know, you know. Yeah, spend six hours on that application and I'm sure it'll turn into an interview spot. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well, it's, uh, it's really cool that you talk about that six-month period. Mm. And we actually took the liberty of asking a couple of people what their experience was working with you and no. knowing you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we'll kind of pick it apart throughout the episode because what they said was really lovely oh, and wow. I think it I think we owe it to you to kind of give you a copy because they're really really some lovely <laughs> words but they basically said that like they just know that there is no one better for the job that you're in now than mm. than you and the reason being is I know this about you as well and I'm sure Becky has picked this up off you you're, you're so approachable and it's just when you when you see someone that's in quite a cool job like yours you're like oh god I bet like they're so experienced and they must be so intimidating but you're not you just kind of assume those things Mm -hmm. so did you have that kind of fear when you were going into your job yes (laughs) yeah so with I'm gonna take it apart a bit because the Salford one being like my first proper grown-up like oof yeah this Mm. is you're gonna be like paying back your student loan sort of serious like you're over the target (laughs) um that imposter syndrome you've i've heard you talk about that on your other podcast episodes like big topic huge thing Mm. huge thing and i went into that with a degree in a subject which did talk about biases and stuff like that so it was relevant but i had no cipd qualifications which is like the hre stuff by the way only Mm. learned that in the not so (laughs) um didn't didn't have that sort of um paper-based experience and I'm so thankful that I got the opportunity for it but I honestly do feel like it was the passion and the keenness to learn which got me the interview I think I was really open and honest in the application and I gave examples of the stuff that I'd done and I used the whole star method but yeah, I think when I got offered the job, obviously it was a dream come true and I burst into tears. And it was that, it just felt like such affirmation, like there is a career in this and you can actually do something in this. Starting the job, imposter syndrome, central, especially because the hiring manager for the role was only a consultant and I only had two weeks with them before their contract was over and then it was just me for the whole organisation to be the inclusion and diversity specialist. That's so intimidating. Like after I'd, two weeks. After two weeks, yeah, after two weeks. Now, Naz, um, Naz, you've seen my, one of my mentors, who hired, she's the lady that hired me, to this day will just be like, ah, yeah, you were going to be fine. It was fine, you'd be fine. But I was absolutely petrified. But I'm going to use that cliche, like, you know what they say. It's like when you throw somebody in the deep end, you just you, you sink or swim, you just got to make it work, haven't you? And there was lots of teething problems and stumbling blocks and absolutely had a few sneaky 10 minute cries in the toilets you know it's one of those situations where you just kind of have to roll with it so that was daunting alone just going into that organization and realizing that I didn't have a support system to lean on like I had to build one spent two years there loved it but was kind of hungry for more um and wanted to be closer to my other half who's in Southampton and it was a long commute to a relationship um so then just kind of and one thing that I would always say that I think it's healthy to do anyway is always just be looking at what other jobs are about like I say that freely knowing that my manager current manager is probably going to listen to this but like it's <laughs> just, yeah, I'm all even. No, I'm um, it's just it's just great to know that language and stay in the loop with like how the sector that you enjoy in is progressing and what other opportunities might be there and I saw this job come up for the house of lords I was like <laughs> lol let's have a go <laughs> let's see what happens um, and again found it on like Indeed or somewhere one of those very standard um, job sites right in the application knew that it was like this is the bread and butter again it was that fire in the belly I was like yeah writing about this stuff gets me going like I'm enjoying doing this application absolute nerd I know but I was like <laughs> yes um, very fortunate enough to have got called to interview and that alone for me I was like 
like I'm like taking pictures walking down <laughs> like there's the palace there's the palace. Like, I was buzzing that I'd even got the invite to to interview like being able to go home and be like yeah just interviewed at the House of Lords uh, I, I felt like an absolute b-knock all over again I was like yeah just interviewed at the House of Lords like how cool is this then when I got the job I think I was absolutely daunted but I was really reassured that they had a culture that was moving in the right direction because if they were willing to hire some northern bird who had only had one IND adult job before this and didn't know anything about politics I thought if they're willing to take a chance on me then I know that actually this organization probably isn't what it looks like from the outside and isn't stale male and pale you know like there's actual activity and I actually enjoyed the interview as well which I think is a, is a signal for what an organization is going to be like so I was definitely daunted but because I'd had a vast amount of experience with imposter syndrome in my previous role I was slightly more prepared I'd say which is kind of ironic because it's parliament but it felt like um I was I was comfortable in the knowledge that they'd chosen me and it felt really great to have that reassurance so for the first time ever instead of feeling like a complete imposter 100% I was a bit like oh okay I'm vibing a bit here like they kind of get me that you know they've offered me the job so this is this might work um I I <laughs> the first like couple of weeks was like every single day I was like what is happening <laughs> like there's protesters outside the security everywhere you've got to get used to this whole card and pin situation and you know there's there's jargon and there's lots of people in really old school outfits and everybody sounds incredibly posh in, apart from my boss who is a Preston gal so <laughs> big <laughs> northwest and it was a lot it was a lot to adapt to adapting to london was actually a bigger deal for me than adapting to the job because I'd worked somewhere else before this job I could back myself a little bit like I'd had I actually did have experience to speak of at this point and I wasn't completely fresh out of the gate so for anybody that's worrying that imposter syndrome gets like worse throughout your life actually it's still there but it does get a little bit easier because your CV starts to get thicker and thicker and actually you keep getting hired at places mm, so you must believe in yourself eventually exactly exactly but yeah it was definitely daunting but absolutely one of the best decisions I've ever made and you touched on there about like the scariness almost of moving to London mm. how did that kind of manifest itself how did you feel when you like first realized you had to move and then the first couple of months being in a new city how did you find that so it was kind of twofold really so my parents were obviously buzzing when I announced that I got the job but I just finished um about of therapy for depression so I'd been diagnosed the year before but that's on top of a generalised anxiety disorder that I've had since I was 12. So was well experienced with therapy and what that meant. Um, and I think they were just a bit concerned that the move to London would be the heaviest bit. Like there's one thing going to the political centre of the UK during one of the biggest shifts in political history. There's another move into London when you just kind of just got yourself back together again because it had been quite a dark... It had been a dark 18 months. It kind of spiraled because I, I think everybody thinks that you experience really poor and low mental health when you're unemployed. And I totally experienced a bit of that. Um, and I was, but what kept me going was thinking, just get a job. Once you get a job, you will be right as rain, sunshine, like everything's going to be absolutely fine. Got the job, obviously ecstatic. Then the honeymoon period wavered and everybody else is living their lives in London or somewhere tropical and cool. They're living with their other halves or they're having the best time with all of this miraculous disposable income that they're somehow man managing to find. Um, whereas I was living up north, which I love, but far away from friends and my other half, with my mum and dad, whilst my little brother was going through his A-levels, so quite a stressful time. And all of that added a layer to being so much in what it felt like so much further behind everybody else. It felt like I was literally coming in last place. So I just got this job and it felt amazing because it was a step towards where I want to be. But yeah, it was still tackling this whole thing of being, you know, behind. So yeah, I just want to shout out one of my mates, Max, actually on that point because he was living the life that I was seeing on Instagram, that I was seeing, you know, loads of people that I went to uni with doing. They were living in London, they were doing the job, they had the disposable income, they were going out, having fun. Um, but the grass isn't always greener, as the saying goes, and 
he was going through something at exactly the same time as me and having his voice and having his experiences kind of exposed me to the fact that it's mental health has no kind of barrier it goes poor mental health goes for anybody and actually the thing that I was kicking myself about every single day was actually not really real like everybody was still experiencing either like money concerns or am I chatting to my friends and family enough am I exercising enough am I drinking enough water all all those sorts of like things that happen is my career going in the right direction is that the graduate tick box oh my gosh yeah yeah, the tick list to to make sure that you're doing life right like that in inverted commas 100 definitely inverted commas (laughs) um but yeah so having having him there to chat to and you know kind of call if I was having like a really bad day and vice versa really helped get through that period and I think because of Max because of the therapy because I was ready to leave my role I was definitely getting tired of where I was at I love it love Salford but I was ready to move on those three things combined meant that I think I I knew inside that I was strong enough to move down here so even though mum and dad were a bit like "Mm, are you sure Uh, I was like yeah go for it let's see what happens um I can always come back if it's it's belly up see in two weeks yeah (laughs) we had my parents had this like um six week rule for uni and I joked that it would be that so it was like when you first go to uni you can't come back for six weeks. Like, you have to stay. You have to engage. Um, and my dad actually joked. He was like, can't come back for six weeks. I was like, <laughs> damn. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, I think moving to London in winter was a thing. The dark nights and mm. the miserable weather. That was definitely a thing. Um, adapting to people not really talking to each other on public transport was a thing. Not to be the cliche northern person. But, like... Yeah, it was just a different vibe, like, than than I was used to, and quite isolating, quite aggressive. Um, the fast pace of walking suited me to the ground because I am a fast walker anyway. Um, but yeah, it was more adapting to being in such a, well, the capital, being at the centre of all activity, um, was more of an adjustment to me than the actual job itself. And if anything, actually, now that I'm talking about it. I think that might have made the transition into the House of Lords easier. I think I would have got more het up about certain procedures and, you know, cultural stuff in the Lords had I not been dealing with this whole London thing. Um, but again, I could not have adapted to being in London without my flatmate, Jen. Like, she was absolutely incredible. So we'd, li- we'd lived together before in Loughborough. We'd worked really closely. So she knows kind of like my tells as it as it were so some nights I'd get in from work maybe like third fourth fifth weekend and I just kind of need to like sit in the dark watching YouTube videos and she'd just knock on the door and she'd stick her head in and she'd be like okay so you're doing your thing right now can I help you with anything is there anything that you need from me um and obviously like I'd end up being like snarky and horrible because when you're in that headspace it's difficult not to hurt the people around you but like an absolute champ she'd just be like no worries see you in like four hours you know like go and come back so had I not had the support system even just Jen just having Jen alone was enough to help me adapt but yeah it was it was a real shift being away from my parents as well without sounding too soppy like I just lived with them for like two years as an adult which is quite cool because it's like <laughs> when you live in with them as a kid and as a teenager you're like you don't do the whole Saturday night wine session watching a film do you know what I mean you're like out doing whatever um, so it was I'm really I'm really thankful that I had that opportunity to live with them and I kind of missed living with them um, but yeah London was tough is the short answer to mm. that short question that yeah. you asked me and no and London is it's such an intimidating place like I built it up in my head to be the most exciting place in the world mm. like we spoke about this a little bit off mic and I was saying how I moved home straight after uni and lived at home for three months and it was three of the most challenging months of my life because not only was I adapting to being back at home after living away and being independent for three years and then it was also combining that with a job and not getting enough sleep and not being able to exercise and all the mental health demons coming back in and being like hello (laughs) 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 and um and it's just so difficult because London is such an overwhelming place and because so many graduates think that London is the place to be that you do you build it up in your head to be this incredible place like I'm going to go to London I'm going to have the most amazing time I'm going to be out at Pagola every night and (laughs) I'm going to be at all these rooftop bars having a great time Aperol spritz in hand and and then you get there and you're like London is so bloody exhausting like even just getting on the tube I get to work and I'm already drained yeah 
let alone having to do it every single day in a job as well. Mm-hmm. So it's such a difficult thing to adapt to, especially like I'm from Essex, so I've been coming to London all my life. Mm-hmm. And then when you live up north and up north, it's such a different vibe. Yeah. Like it's so important to talk about it, I think, because yeah. everyone builds up London to be the most amazing place in the world. And it's like, there's so much opportunity here. It's going to be a great time. But then it's all right for it not to be as well. Yeah. And it's all right to feel lonely because everyone feels lonely in London because no one talks to each other mm-hmm. and everyone's in such a fast pace and thinks they've got to be doing this, this and this. Yeah. And I think just realising London doesn't have to be perfect all the time no. and your life doesn't have to be Instagram worthy all the time oh is so gosh. important. And it's, I think, if anything, the biggest thing I've learned in the last year since being here is managing expectations. Like, managing expectations, not just in, like, you're totally in agreement with you, they're like, what London is going to be like and how often you're actually going to be out and how often you're actually going to look nice and be out and how often you're going to be in somewhere you can tag on Instagram and all this sort of thing. It's actually as well like how much money you're going to be able to have at the end of the month when rent's paid and all that sort of stuff. Managing expectations about how awake you're going to be for social events. Managing expectations about actually some nights it's even too tiring to like WhatsApp someone. Like sometimes you just need to like watch Netflix and just disappear in your head for a bit that like because I felt the pressure when I first got here because like everybody was building it up at where I used to work like oh you know there's so many museums and there's so many theatre shows and there's so many like historical things you can go and see and do and my first couple of months I was I felt I, I don't know who I felt like I was under pressure from other than just kind of like the you know people that I didn't speak to that I used to work with um to do with how many museums I'd been to and how many culturally significant things I'd seen and how many of the events in Time Out that I'd been to that week and whether I'd tried that free pop-up stand that was in Victoria Station that day and all that sort of stuff. Actually, it's okay if at the weekend you just want to stay in and watch Vampire Diaries. Like, you don't have to go out and do anything. Um, But that was was a whole learning curve for me. And as soon as I realised that everybody has this kind of like London chapter for, for me anyway I see it as that because I'm not from like around here um as, as soon as you realize that actually it is yours to make of it what you will if it, the thing that I do most weeks is go to the pub quiz in Brixton with four of my mates and if that's the only thing that I do that's social every single week I will not look back when I'm 60 years old with regret because I didn't go to all these expensive places to eat and I wasn't at the Shard every other day. Like, I'm, I'm at a pub quiz with my friends having a really good time <laughs> and relaxing, which is the whole point. Why? What, what else is the point of going to these mm. places? Oh, no, exactly. So true. Yeah. yeah. So um, I noticed that the House of Lords got gold. Yes. Yeah, in the inclusivity... National Inclusion Standard. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and like how that comes about and what is the measure of that as well? So I found that really interesting. Yeah, 100%. So the bane of most inclusion and diversity practitioners' lives are charter marks. And I feel cool enough saying that because I've chatted to enough colleagues in this area to know that filling out applications for different awards can often be quite tiresome, quite... Ugh, you know just really laborious um so there's tons of charter marks for different things so in higher education they have the athena swan charter for gender equality in academia um they've got the, a similar one for race as well um, all workplaces can fill out the stonewall workplace equality index which is about lgbt plus inclusivity in the workplace there's tons there's absolutely tons um but the difference with the national inclusion standard and why i think we're me and rachel my boss are so proud that the lords has been recognized and we are actually the first organization in the uk to get gold sorry just Love like it. caveat to that announcement um but it's it's really great because it's a standard which measures how inclusive an organization is according to six different pillars and what's brilliant is that the pillars actually get into the nitty-gritty in terms of how the culture is impacting colleagues so yes they want to know about how robust your processes are and your policies are and how inclusive they are of multiple identities and caring responsibilities and it actually takes it a step further by looking at how you communicate with your staff how you can how you consider communicating with colleagues aren't aren't desk-based how do you include them within the messages how are you engaging colleagues in the messages of ind how are you making it relevant to them how are you making them feel as though they are valued for their difference, whatever level of the organisation they're at? 
and I realise these are these are very like kind of just fluffy words that I'm using. Um, but when you see the application and you kind of go through the process, you really have to evidence the quality of the work that you're delivering in the organisation. So it's all well and good as talking about the fact that we've got two face-to-face half-day diversity-based training sessions, but let's actually look at the evaluations we've been getting from that. Let's look at the feedback. Mm. Let's look at the 360. Exactly. So rather than just it being about the numbers, who is attending the training session, it's about what did they get from it? How did it apply? Um, Looking at things to do with, okay, so you're bringing in diverse colleagues. Are they staying there? Is it a culture that encourages and appreciates diversity in that sense? Are people's differences being valued wider than just, you know... um, the statistics it, it really makes you get into the nitty-gritty but what they're really great at is testing us in making sure that we're making inclusion and diversity relevant to the senior leadership within the organization which as i'm sure you'll be unsurprised to hear in the house of lords um is relatively old white males uh from quite a middle class background largely oxbridge um but it's about engaging them in the conversation and it being real and relevant and the gold standard is a real affirmation that we're we're barking up the right trees we're going in the right direction we're having the the right conversations so yeah that was amazing i actually met eddie redmayne on the night of that awards (gasps) as well i know oh my god i think i would have died on the spot i got very i i was bold i went over basically so classic ind person like always thinking about the ind i went (laughs) over and i told him that his portrayal of stephen hawking in the theory of everything made it really easy to have some difficult conversations about progressive disability with colleagues with family members um and the one thing that I missed the whole time, I like, I, I had this whole conversation with him. He was as amazing in real life as you think he would oh. be. He was so sweet. He literally did that. He like had his hand on his chest, like, thank you so much. Oh, that's what you want to hear. Oh my gosh, it was music to my, he was the dream. And then I walked away and my colleague was like, you realise you had your hand on his like the entire time that you had a <laughs> oh conversation. I firmly thought it was the armchair, folks. Like, I'm not even joking. I'm that's not amazing. even joking. <laughs> but, <laughs> I know. Good Lord. A lot of graduates listening to this or people who are going to be graduating soon might not have ever thought about IND and might not have thought about how they can get involved in the conversation and how they can help people. But you think that you've mentioned off mic that you think is already relating to people. Mm-hmm. How do you think that graduates can get involved and kind of make workplaces more inclusive and diverse? Oh, okay, here we go. Um, I think in short there's kind of two key no there's three key ways that graduates can do it but expanding beyond graduates I think anybody but if anyone has the power to make change at the moment it's our generation coming up through the ranks and being able to create the organizations of the future and change them and mold them into organizations that we actually want to be a part of the main thing I think in terms of so graduates that don't aren't already in positions, don't already have positions, my main bit of advice would be find organisations who share your values. If you are about to step into an organisation which does not look like it considers how authentic its people are in the workplace, that does not look like it looks at its people as having lives outside of work, that makes decisions in areas that you might have read in the news or something which you find don't align with your moral values, you absolutely have the right and should be empowered to not choose that organization choose organizations which speak to you in terms of values because there is nothing worse than working for an organization which completely contradicts everything that you stand for and i know that sounds very like empowered and campaigny but even so for example sustainability it's it's conversations like that it's things whatever your you gets you riled if you see it on the news or there's something that you're trying to do in your life every day to kind of make things a bit easier on the planet on other people whatever it might be make that choice with organizations i know i'm coming from a bit of a point of privilege there as though some graduates don't just have to pick an organization with a grad scheme that they can go for but just keep it in mind just keep it in mind Mm. um in terms of how powerful graduates are in this conversation and I forget what we are, Gen Z, Millennials, whoever it might we're be. On the cusp. We, yeah, we're, yeah. we're on the cusp, I thought so. Um, we are actually the best generation for these sorts of conversations. So it's threefold, as I say. The first one in the workplace in terms of what you can do. The most basic way to kind of start 
turning these conversations that you might have in your head or with your family or with your friends into action is to join a staff network. It is highly likely that your organisation has a staff network to do with something, if not a lot of different strands. Even if you just sign up to the Maven list and get the odd email once a week, once a month, whatever it might be, just have a read, have a flick through, because actually staff networks are extremely powerful in organisations. And you being part of a collective voice is a really easy way of stepping into tackling any barriers or negative impacts which might be happening in the organisation. The second thing I would say is everyday conversations. That's like one of my favourite phrases because the power is in the small steps, not in the massive steps. I was reading um, uh, Why I No Longer Talk to White People About Race. Oh, that looks uh, like such a good Yeah, book. yeah. And um, Rennie Edo-Lodge, I think is yeah. the author's name. Incredible. I've watched so many interviews with her since I read the book. And I've got... Um, a woke reading list of 2019 of like books that I'm trying to get through it's like Becoming by Michelle Obama that one Women in Power there's, there's like loads mm. on there I'll send it to you um, please do yeah no I will <laughs> um, but it's helping give me the words to express myself better in the workplace and when I'm chatting to my mates and stuff but one of the things that um, she talked about in that book was that irrespective of whether you work in this job whether you um, are part of a staff network, whether you um, have anything to do with IND or not at all, small things that you do in your everyday conversations on the bus, well, or not as the case may be in London, uh, but wherever you are, just with anybody, actually has so much more power than you realise because just giving somebody an alternate perspective on something is is incredibly powerful. Um, so yeah, first one, staff networks. Second one, everyday conversations, which I'll go into a bit more detail in a minute. But the third is actually outside of work so it's about what you're reading on articles on facebook what you're flicking through on twitter stuff that you're seeing your mates get a bit you know keen about in their instagram stories like that is engaging with inclusion and diversity by your your putting power behind your voice you're sharing it on your social media you're having the conversations at the pub quiz you're doing you know you're having the chat with your mum when you walk in the dog when you go home on a weekend or whatever um and it's about getting kind of the language better and establishing what it is that you care about in a specific area so for me uh, identifying as a woman being a feminist is a massive part of my identity and i've got to say that i became furiously feminist when i moved to london because i've experienced so much more here in terms of sexism and harassment than anywhere before but that's we can do a whole thing on that it's literally just crazy but i was frustrated because i didn't feel like i had the words to talk about it so what I did was I listened to Emma Watson interviews and she she's so eloquent. She she's just knows actual dream. I, know. I love her so much. She just gets it, doesn't she? She literally yeah. gets it. And it helped me doing that sort of thing interested me, but it helped me figure out the words I needed to say. So um my other half, Gareth, he we 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 had when I first moved to London, I really struggled with the intensity of my experiences as a woman uh, the negative experiences of being a woman in London I really struggled with it to the point where like every other week I'd have like 45 minutes where I'd just have a breakdown over the phone because I was so frustrated but I could not get the words out even doing this job I couldn't say out loud why I was so angry and why I was so furious um, and then I couldn't get it out when I did find some better words in a way that didn't make him feel targeted. And like I was generalizing by talking about men in general and targeting him as a boy, you know? Um, so it was, a, it was a learning curve for me. But I tell you what, once you do a bit of outside reading or you watch a couple of short YouTube videos or listen to a couple of podcasts, having, that, having the words in your head means that you can have those conversations with your boyfriend, your mum, your girlfriend, whoever it might be, your sister, your neighbour, your dog, um, about what it is that makes, you know, makes you tick, the things that you've seen that make you feel like there is injustice or barriers or um, negative experiences for somebody. So the biggest thing I would say for graduates is just recognise that when you're sharing stuff on Twitter, when you're reading those threads and like for example um there's that really popular thread about um everything that women have to think about that men mm. don't so it's that thing about you know only ever having like one headphone in and it's always on quite a low volume having your keys in your hand in your pocket and always pretending you're on the phone to someone all those sorts of things and guys are responding to it saying i never even knew this was a thing i did not know this was your experience 
even if all you're doing is reading those threads and you're nodding along as you're reading it and thinking, yeah, this is so relevant to me. And then you mention it in passing to someone that you're at a gym class with or whatever. That's you engaging with this conversation and that is you exposing somebody to it that might not be exposed to it. So this is very rumbly. But the point of what I'm trying to get across is inclusion and diversity is way more than just the Equality Act and protected characteristics and the corporate stuff that you might see in your workplace it's about the conversations and the quality of them um so like privilege is another conversation which i think is just starting to kind of kick in in the workplace and another thing that's mentioned in that book um menopause and actually familiarizing that men talking about it is important because the likelihood of them having a woman in their lives whether it be their mom their partner who is going to experience it at some point or is experiencing it now means that it shouldn't be a taboo subject mm-hmm. There's other stuff to do with, um, so we talk about, or my dad actually joked um, a couple of years back that as, you know, a kind of like white middle-class male, he's now the most minority group, duh, 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 duh. And at the point, at that point, I didn't have the words. I, I, I wasn't great at rebutting what he was saying and coming back to it. Whereas if I were to, I got a bit aggy. Is, is the word I would use. Um, but the, whereas if I were to speak to him now about it, which I do, and he's a fantastic advocate for this sort of stuff now, um, which again is why you should have these conversations as much as you can, um, I would talk about the fact that inclusion is the priority because yes, he might be in the traditional sense a white middle-class male and yes, he might be straight and he might have done the whole get a family, get a mortgage, do your job thing. But actually, my dad has a lot of difference in him and about him. And as soon as we started to have conversations where I was acknowledging his difference and acknowledging that he wasn't just the visual identifiers of his difference or his majority, as a lot of people would talk about it, immediately the tone of the conversation changed. And I feel like, honestly, on a daily basis, I was saying this to you off mic, I have to justify the reason for my existence as a role. You're justifying every single day why inclusion and diversity needs to exist. Even like this weekend, I was given a tour for a couple of mates and they brought a few mates along as well. And one of the guys that was there was like, oh, fantastic tour, thank you so much. Like, don't know if I appreciate what you do for a job though. Don't even think it really needs to exist. And what? I was like, oh no, it's exactly that. I don't agree with it or something like that. And every single day I interact with that sort of, of tone, like needing to justify why I'm there. But it's because my favorite word is exposure because unless you are exposed to people's experiences different to your own, how are you ever going to realise that there is a necessity for this sort of work? Mm, it's so true. Like, when before I went to uni, I didn't consider the wider world as much as I probably should have done because I'd grown up in a tiny little town in Essex mm-hmm. where everyone was white and everyone in Essex is a Tory. Mm-hmm. And I got to uni and I was like, oh my God, other people exist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And since like actually having conversations with people and learning about different experiences mm-hmm. and how everybody comes at things with different learned experiences and we're all muddling along together with different things going on in our personal mm-hmm. contexts and I was like oh my god like we can all relate on different things and everybody has something to give yeah. and the more we talk about it and the more that we engage with each other and appreciate cultural nuances and appreciate how different personalities that like you might be a white middle class male but every white middle class male is different oh yeah and oh, actually yeah. being like I'm not going to get angry about all these like privileged white guys mm-hmm. I'm going to be like right I'm going to try and understand it from their perspective mm-hmm. or try and see things in different ways mm-hmm. you just completely change the way you think of things and it makes you Absolutely. less angry and you yeah. can relate to people on such a different level I cannot like get over how much I resonate with what you just said because mm. I've spoken to Becky quite a lot about this as well. Um, one of my highlights this year is kind of recognizing what my my core values are, mm. and like he said, you it's a little bit crap that you have to feel like you have to justify why you do the job you do. However, the reason why you're semi happy to do that is because it aligns with your values to mm-hmm. a T. Mm. So you have every passion behind telling people why you do what you do and like I've I've really noticed the importance of journaling mm-hmm. so off the back of what you said if anyone's like listening and they're going through like a process of um, um, applying for jobs or trying to realize if they're in the right job just write down some key words of what 
your passions are, what your skills are, what environment you like working in, mm-hmm. and just look for that and just try and align where you are because yeah. it'll make such a difference to how you see not just yourself but other people. There's a quote from Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, which is the most quotable book on the planet. Queen Obama. I, I need to read that. That's all I read. So there's two quotes in it which I think are really relevant to what we're talking about now. So the first one, and again, I think this one she's talking about um, having just moved in with Barack and adapting to living with somebody else in close proximity. And she summarises it by saying, there is simply other ways of being. One, I think is really significant. Just recognising that other people do things slightly differently to you. That is a thing. We're all different. Not a big deal. And then the second one um, is actually earlier in the book and she's talking about um, kind of a tidbit of wisdom that she got from some elderly relatives that she used to live above in the house great book read about it um and it says everyone on earth is carrying an unseen history and that alone deserves some tolerance Mm -hmm. so everybody's got something going on behind their you know front Mm -hmm. 100 and that just alone deserves some tolerance Mm -hmm. like it's I, the analogy of the iceberg. Only yeah. You oh see the gosh. tip of the iceberg. Yeah. yeah. The behaviours, what's on the front mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. But you have no idea what that person's values are, what yeah. they've experienced, mm-hmm. what they're going through, even that day, let alone the whole of their life. Yeah. So, oh. Yeah. Mm, no, and that's why I think it's so important when you ask someone how they are, like, no, how are you really? Yeah. Like, Christ. don't get just the surface of oh I'm great a bit tired yeah. it's like no how are you really like what's your day been like because it makes such a difference like mm-hmm. when someone really wants to know how you are mm-hmm. you feel the confidence that you can open up and then they're not going to judge you and you're not just venting and putting all your shit on them yeah, it's exactly. actually like oh they want to know yeah. and then the more you talk about it and the more like the more confidence you gain in the fact that you can just open up about things and it's Absolutely. like if you judge me that's your problem yeah yeah but I think a good way to kind of like bring it t- to an end we are going to ask you Gemma how are you going to continue to grab life by the horns another one that I thought about deeply before I got here today (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to continue to grab life by the horns by remembering that although what I do is so intrinsically tied to my values work is work and life outside of work is life outside of work my dad says that I'm kind of his role model for taking annual leave because I never have annual leave left over at the end of the year. I use every single day, even if it's just a day in the house, it's a day in the house. I don't have to be doing something exciting. So I'm, I'm going to continue to grad life by the horns by prioritising work-life balance like there is no tomorrow. This has been such an amazing conversation. You've been brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. I just feel so inspired mm. like I was having a crappy day today yeah. and I was just not in the zone and I just feel a million times better after yeah. having that chat with Gemma it's one of those kind of conversations that you can almost see as like a coaching session or even like a mentoring or therapy session mm. because you just talk about so much stuff yeah I don't need to pay 40 quid for a therapy no. session I can just do this every week exactly that's why we're doing it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we would just like to say it might be worthwhile Just take a piece of paper and a pen and write down your personal key takeaways and put it up somewhere so you can see it because it's so important that you kind of reflect on these things. If you hear something that resonates with you, we just want it to stick. Mm, Absolutely. I think we're all so quick to dismiss all the self-care stuff and be like, oh, it's a bit wanky and like probably probably should do it, but I don't have the energy to do it. But just like listen to a podcast and making a few notes on your phone as you go through like oh that's really good because actually sometimes you need a positive affirmation you need to hear something inspirational just to like perk you up a bit and be like you know what it might feel really rubbish at the moment but actually things can get better and i need something just a little pick me up to get you through it yeah and this episode i think as tooting our own horn i think this episode is a perfect episode to do that with (laughs) yeah i agree because i'm gonna do exactly that on my train home But we will first, actually, we would like to finish this episode by saying thank you so much for all the support that you guys are continuing to give us. We are now at 2,000 downloads. So exciting. In 24, 24 countries. countries. Oh, literally it's a mad. dream. I saw that today. Someone had listened in Kenya. And I was like, how are we reaching like so many places? I, I was like having a bit of an excitable moment on my lunch break. I was like, no, calm down. Calm Crazy. down. You're in your canteen. Calm down. <laughs> 
Oh, so happy. So exciting. And on that note, we would love it if you would engage with us and follow us on social media. Our main platform is Instagram and we are there at Grad Life by the Horns. When we spoke last week on Danny's episode about our graduate takeover, this is something we'll be talking more about on Instagram over the next few weeks. So make sure you're staying up to date with what we're doing on there to make sure that you're ready when the graduate takeover happens. We want to hear from you. We want to hear how you're liking the podcasting, you're not liking. Give us your feedback because it ultimately makes us better podcasters and it means that the episodes are more tailored to what you want. But thank you again so much for listening and we can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks. See you in a fortnight. Bye.